0: To basically rise by any means necessary. He was ruthlessly pragmatic in all that he does. You get this, this scene of this, this really shrewd and ruthless politician. And along the way, as Frank gains more and more power and influence, he grows even more shrewd. He grows even more ruthless as he seeks to protect that power and influence. And you see him change over the course of the show because his political plans must be protected at all costs. And what it leads Frank to do is he's always on the lookout for a potential threat. He's always trying to see behind someone's motives. He's always looking to see, who is, is this going to be the person that's going to come and take me out? And he's trying to get ahead of them. Now hopefully this morning as you think about this show, you're not as cutthroat as Frank Underwood. I hope you're not. But many of us live our lives just like Him. We're always on the lookout for potential threats to our carefully crafted plans that we have for our lives. And at the spiritual level, the problem comes when Jesus starts meddling in our affairs. You know, as we've talked about, don't go meddling. What happens if you, if you meddle? The problems come in our lives when Jesus starts kind of meddling with our, our plans and our wonderful uh, kind of future that we have all mapped out for us. And we're afraid that if we surrender to Jesus, he might wreck those wonderful plans that we have for our lives. And so deep down we all function like we're the monarchs of our own little lives. And we try to keep the true king at a distance, or at least we try to as best we can. It's actually an exhausting way to live because what, when you really think about it, what you can never do is really rest. You're always on the lookout for what is going to be the thing that is going to break through these carefully crafted plans that I have. And as we think about this passage this morning, I want us to remember yet again, and let me remind you, we are marching verse by verse towards the cross. The cross is coming. And Jesus has been at odds with the Pharisees and the Sadducees throughout John's Gospel. This constant rising tension with the religious and political elite. You can feel it kind of starting to, to boil up as we move through the passage. And simply put, Jesus starts meddling with the status quo, And they see Him as a threat to their positions of influence and their carefully crafted plans to keep those positions and to keep that influence. And as Jesus' ministry and influence grew, He became more and more of a threat to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they hated Him. Now the cherry on top, when we think about where we are in this passage, and we think about this tension that's rising as Jesus' notoriety is, is, is gaining more and more ground and His ministry is growing, kind of the cherry on top was what we looked at last week, wasn't it? This miraculous and very public raising of Lazarus from the dead. That he was all the way dead, in the tomb for four days. His death was not in question and remember, Jesus publicly raised him from the dead. And we said, you'd be crazy to think that that stayed within that little band of people. The word just went out. and So in many ways, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they look at Jesus and they go, What's the, how are we going to handle this guy? But what if their Frank Underwood-style attack against the Son of God was all part of the larger plan of God the Father from the very beginning? And what if it pointed to something that lies at the very heart of the Christian gospel? See if you can pick up on this in the passages we read this morning. John eleven forty five 45 to 57. Keep that in mind, this tension that exists. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. John 11, starting in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, where he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. Jesus, we need You. Father, meet us here as we look to Your Word. Lord, wake our hearts up. Take this Word. Apply it to our hearts. Remind us of Your great sovereignty. Remind us of Your truth. And Father, draw near to us this morning. That's all we know how to pray. Let Your will be done. We ask and pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Did you notice when we read through that passage at the beginning of verse 48, this little bitty phrase that gave the Pharisees heartburn? Did you notice that phrase? It says, if we let him go on like this, cause them great heartburn. But what caused them heartburn is actually our hope. And we're going to ask the question why. What would have happened if Jesus had given up when the pressure mounted? What would have happened if he had stopped when his life was threatened? What would have happened when the, ten- when the tension and the pressure mounted? Jesus said, okay, that's enough, and I'm not going to go anymore. This is another, quote-unquote, pointless sermon, as, some of, as somebody here in this congregation reminds me when I say, we don't have any points this morning. This is another pointless sermon. What I want to do is just talk through the text and apply as we go. So let's just look through this text as we kind of go this morning. Look at verses 45 and 46. Last week we talked about the death of Lazarus and the crowd of mourners who had come to console Mary and Martha. And they had accompanied Mary and Jesus to the tomb. And when Lazarus was unmistakably and miraculously raised from the dead after four days in the tomb by the power of just Jesus' voice. Remember, he stood at the entrance of the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. That's all he used, just the power of his voice. Some of the crowd finally saw Jesus as the Son of God and believed in Him. The Greek actually reads, believed into Him. Speaking of union with Christ by faith. They were united to Him. But some who saw the exact same miracle in their presence responded in unbelief and basically ran back to the Pharisees to tattle on Him. That's a theological term. There's an, an, an ancient proverb that first appeared in written form in Sanskrit in the 4th century B.C. And the first recorded version in English appeared in 1884. And this ancient proverb is this, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's exactly what happens in verse 47, when these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, usually at odds with each other, says they form the council. This alliance to come up with a plan to deal with their enemy, Jesus. They've got a common enemy, so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And in verse 47, notice they recognize that Jesus performed signs. But I also want you to notice as they imagine and they think, this guy Jesus is doing something different. He's performing signs. But notice they never use any of these miracles as a chance to go back and reevaluate their views on Jesus' claims. They never take the time to go see God's blessing on those whom Jesus ministered to. I mean, you would think raising a guy from the dead publicly would maybe be a time to go back and reevaluate his claims to be the Son of God. But apparently not. And you see this contrast of responses to Jesus' public ministry here. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. But these two groups come up with this alliance, and it it shows you just how hard their hearts were and how they were unable to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd standing right in front of them. They analyzed the problem politically and pragmatically instead of spiritually. Do you notice that? Instead of going back and going, well, maybe we were wrong about this Jesus guy. Look at what they say in verse 48 as they respond to this. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. As Jesus gained more followers, they were afraid that it would raise the ire of the occupying Romans who would swiftly come in and do what they do best, which is you know, bring uh, suppression. They would suppress any uprising. They were really good at that. They would come in, they would take away their temple, our place as they say and their political status, our nation. They'll come in and ruin everything. If we let Jesus keep doing and going, and, and if we don't deal with this problem, the Romans are going to come in and basically steal everything from us. And you need to remember Judea was seen as a dusty outpost, and what Rome did is they let the Jews have their fun with their God and their temple and all their ceremonies and stuff. They let them go and have their fun out in the wilderness as long as they didn't stir up any trouble. And you think about today how this... How this hits in our own backyard, many in the secular and political and religiously liberal circles in our day and age feel the same way about those silly evangelical uh, conservatives today. They'll let us have our fun with our Bibles and Jesus and our old moral codes. They'll let us have our little fun out there until we start meddling, right? Until we start meddling. Then we're seen as a threat that needs to be handled, that needs to be squished, Look at verses 49 and 50 where one of the men at the council, this man named Caiaphas, spoke up. And his idea is very Frank Underwood-esque in its pragmatism. They want to remove this Jesus problem and avoid the Roman boot. And Caiaphas led the Sadducees, this elite educated group of kind of wealthy and influential Jews in the city, And this group, and Caiaphas, was on good terms with the occupying Romans, and he knew Jesus was a threat to their comfortable lives. And he callously suggested that for the sake of everyone assembled, certain quote-unquote collateral damage had to be expected, even if that meant the death of an innocent man. Here's what Hendrickson said in his commentary that I thought was helpful. He said, That Caiaphas was a rude and sly manipulator, an opportunist, who did not know the meaning of fairness or justice and was bent on having his own way by hook or by crook. Remember, as Caiaphas is making this decision, he brings this up. Remember, he's serving as the high priest that year. I mean, think about this is a guy who's in immense spiritual position of authority. And look at what he's saying. Well, guess what? We got this Jesus problem, but certain collateral damage is to be expected here. And let's let's deal with him over here. I guess he forgot Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now I think in this moment, it's all easy for us to look at Caiaphas and to look at this council that's assembled and to shake our heads in disgust. How could they? Until we realize that we're just like Him. We're just like Him. We're fine keeping Jesus at arm's length or compartmentalizing Him to just Sunday mornings. But the problems come when Jesus starts meddling and becomes a threat to our comfortable lives and our carefully crafted plans. And then what we do is we lash out. We may not plot to kill Jesus like Caiaphas, but we'll just pretend that He doesn't exist when He interferes with our plans, when He interferes with what we want to do, but yet we see and we feel that check that we shouldn't do it. We squish it down. We'll remove him from the throne of our hearts and treat him like a mild nuisance instead of as a king and as a savior. Or we'll just ignore him altogether. It's easy to follow Jesus on Sunday mornings for a few hours and then live like he doesn't exist for the rest of the week. With your time, with your relationships, with your money, with your jobs, with your families. It's easy to come here on Sunday morning and claim Jesus is King, but then walk out of here and live as, your, as though you're your own little Savior and God through the rest of the week. It's the reason why so many now skip church on Sunday for any reason and go about with what we really want to do. It's okay, we'll just watch church later online when it's convenient for us. Now, I'm not discounting the real need for some to watch the live stream due to COVID. If you're here and watching the live stream, we love you. It's Okay. But I'm afraid that now over the past year, I'm afraid that many are now using it as an excuse to make the Sabbath movable to fit their lifestyle instead of making it holy and set apart as the Lord has commanded us to do. We kind of pick and choose which day works in our busy schedule for be the Sabbath. And then we'll just kind of move things around. We'll kind of fit a little Jesus in there and then move on and basically do whatever we want to do. It's the reason why churches everywhere, literally everywhere, have a lost and found box full of Bibles. Many of those Bibles have been in there for months. Their owners have no idea that they're missing. It's the reason why people church hop for months or just be a perpetual visitor, avoiding anything that feels like commitment to the body and bride of Christ, avoiding any commitment whatsoever until they need something. And you think about You you might be thinking, oh, be careful now. Be careful, Dave. You're meddling. Don't go meddling, preacher. Don't go meddling. Here's the thing. Y'all, I'm just like Caiaphas too. I do it too. We all do it. We're just like the council in verse 48. We're afraid of what will happen if we let Jesus keep going on like this. We're afraid of that. We're afraid that he will cause us to lose our comfort and control and maybe give some of that up, and we're absolutely terrified. Only so far, Jesus, not, not that much. Just that far, but nothing beyond that. I'm like that too. You are too. We think about how we act just like the council, and we're so afraid if we let Jesus go on like this, and we're so afraid of losing our comfort and control, we need to repent with godly sorrow and thank Jesus that he did go on like that. We're thankful that you did, that you did go on. Lord, and we're sorry. We're sorry for all the ways that we're trying to be God. We're sorry for treating you like a mild nuisance instead of a king who went all the way to the cross for us. And we're thankful that you did go on. We're thankful that you went all the way to the cross. Imagine where we would be this morning if Jesus didn't keep going when people got uncomfortable and wanted to take him out. We would still be under the wrath of God without a substitute, having to atone for our own sin, Imagine what would have happened if Jesus said, oh, I'm, I'm just going to give up. The pressure's too much. Aren't you thankful this morning that Jesus went all the way to be your substitute? Here's where the good news comes in. Don't miss it. Don't miss the good news. Look at verses 51 and 52. John offers a glimpse behind the curtain in these verses because they reveal the true plan of God unknowingly in the sovereignty of God. Wicked Caiaphas actually utters a gospel prophecy. Did you pick up on it? Look at verses 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Again, here's what Hendrickson said. He said, Caiaphas poured meaning into his words, but God also poured another meaning into them. Because God is at work, God's sovereignty is, is on full display here. Here's what the ESV Transformation Study Bible said in a footnote that I thought was helpful said, here's another example of the use of irony in John's gospel. Caiaphas, the high priest, unwittingly prophesied that Jesus' death would be a vicarious substitutionary atonement. The God of all grace is sovereignly at work. At all times and in all places, He sits in heaven and laughs derisively at those who plot and scheme against His saving purposes in His Son. So we think about what's going on here in this text. We see that this group of people is trying to take out Jesus because he's a threat to them. But yet at the same time, the sovereign God is moving behind the scenes, bringing all things to bear, and we rest in that. And so we think, as, as Hendrickson said, those who plot and scheme against the saving purposes in his son, we ask the question, well, what are those saving purposes in his son? What are we talking about here? Here's the, here's the good news the saving purposes in His Son is securing salvation for a bunch of wicked, pragmatic, undeserving Caiaphas like you and me on the cross by sheer grace, by sheer mercy, and by sheer compassion. That is absolutely good news. That is the good news of the gospel. We think about we're all like Caiaphas. We're all like the council. We're afraid if we let Jesus keep going on like this. We're all afraid of what He might ask. And here's the good news of the Gospel. Undeserving as we are. While we were yet enemies. While we were wicked. Christ died for us. And He drew us near. How did Jesus do this? How did Jesus accomplish this? By being that one man. By being that one man who died for the people. That we see in verse 50. By being that one. No one else could do it. Why? So that He could gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad in verse 52. So that He could accomplish that. We were the ones who were scattered abroad. That's us. That's us. And aren't you thankful that Jesus was that one man Fully God, fully man, the only one who is able to be the full substitutionary atonement for you and for me. He was that one man who died in our place so that we, the scattered ones, could be brought in. It's amazing when you think about it. Like the good shepherd calling to his scattered sheep and leaving the 99 to pursue the one who was lost and helpless. It's an absolute picture of grace. It's an absolute picture of grace. And what if at any time Jesus had said, the pressure's too much, I'm not going to go there. I can't. What if your your gospel account stopped right here? Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they team up and they say, we've got to take care of this Jesus problem, and they wipe him out and that's it. We're in trouble. But aren't you thankful that Jesus went all the way to the cross? Remember, we are marching towards his death. He knows it's coming. The cross didn't catch him off guard. We know from the eternal covenant of redemption he willingly said I will go and do whatever it takes to redeem the people that you have given me even if it means my own death. I will do it. I will do it. And he knows it's coming. Romans 5 6-11 for while we were still weak. That's us. Christ died for the at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his own love for us in this that while we were what? Still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God that we justly deserved. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Philippians 2, eight. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, when you think about these promises that we have been given, thinking about all that Christ has done, all that he has accomplished, we think, where does our own glory fit into that equation? It doesn't. That's when we sit here and say, thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. Or don't let me keep any of myself. I have nothing. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have accomplished for me, doing what I never could do, doing what I didn't want to do. And you've changed my heart. And you've given me a new status. I've been justified by grace. And I've been given a new family. I'm one of those sheep that was scattered abroad. And you brought... You remember a couple of weeks ago when I told you the story about the shepherd? And the sheep are like... You can't even see them. They're up in this fog. And he just starts calling out. And all of a sudden you hear the bleeding of sheep. And they, all of a sudden this flock comes running down the hill out of the midst. And they assemble. That's us. That's the gospel. That's why it's so good. And you think this morning, aren't you thankful that Jesus kept on going like He did? Remember that thing that caused the Pharisees and the Sadducees such heartburn? If we let Him keep going on like this, this is what's going to happen. Aren't you thankful that He kept going on like this? All the way to the cross? Knowing it was coming. What gives the council heartburn gives us hope. Why? Why? Because the council's plan in verse 53 was all part of the eternal sovereign plan of redemption between the Father and the Son. Jesus willingly gave his life to accomplish salvation for the people of God that God the Father gave to him before the foundation of the world. And that group is made up of people from all tribes, nations, and tongues. Aren't you thankful for that? That means I'm a Gentile. Gentiles like you and me have been brought in. And we've been brought into the family of God. It's amazing when you think about it. You just sit there and you stare. And it's all because Jesus never gave up. He set his jaw and he kept going forward. It's amazing when you think about it. The wicked counsel's plan in verse 53. And remember Jesus said, you're in league with Satan. He had strong words for them. You are united to your father, the devil. Think about this this plan that they hatched in verse 53. It looked like it worked, didn't it? So they plotted all the morning. Look at what it says in verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Frank Underwood style, we got a Jesus problem, we got to take this guy out. Remember, this isn't anything new. They've been plotting his death to take him out since chapter 5. Look where we are now, chapter 11, same song, different verse. They're still at it, but now they redouble their efforts. we got to take this guy out. You think about this, though. That, pr- that plan that they hatched in verse 53, we got to take this guy out and plot his death. It looked like it worked, didn't it? It looked like the Jesus problem had been dealt with on that cross until that stone rolled away, didn't it? Until the stone rolled away on that third day. It looked like their plan had accomplished its end until it didn't. And that gives us hope. Aren't you thankful this morning that the tomb is empty? Aren't you thankful this morning that your Savior lives? It's not just a like an intellectual thing we assent to. Yes, I believe the tomb is empty, and there was historical evidence for it. No, it's our hope. Because Jesus is alive and he's coming back again. First Corinthians fifteen. You want a closing illustration? Here you go. First Corinthians fifteen, twelve to twenty six. Here are the good news. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That means we need to pack it up and go home. That means I am in the worst line of business ever. I have the silliest job on planet earth. If Jesus is still dead and in the tomb, then I am really, really misinformed. And your faith is in vain. We might as well just lock the doors and cut the lights off and never come back. That's what Paul's saying. That if the resurrection didn't happen, that's true. But, he doesn't stop there, does he? Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. That's what happened if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. That we are pitiful in the world's eyes. Like actually pitiful. But, verse 20... But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. but each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits, Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Yes, praise God. The world's heartburn is our hope, isn't it? If we let him keep going on like this, that's our hope. That's all we got. It's amazing when you think about it. And so if you are here and you are worried, well, what will happen if Jesus comes and starts meddling my life and wrecks all my perfect plans? It'll probably be the best thing that's ever happened to you. Because you'll be able to lean into the sovereign power of an almighty God who loves you and that His ways are better than your ways. And we're thankful that Jesus set His jaw and He went all the way to the cross to become that one man. The only one who could die and fully atone for the sins of his people. What happened if Jesus had any sin when he died on the cross? Whose sin would he be dying for? His own. And that leaves you and me with a big sin problem, doesn't it? And we're under the wrath of God. But aren't you thankful? He was fully God, fully man. No sin. And he was able to die as that perfect and spotless lamb, the one who was prophesied from the very beginning. There's this one who's going to come, and he's going to lay down his life and become the perfect substitute, dying in your place and accomplishing what you could never do on your own so that you could walk in grace and love and mercy and be freed from his wrath and now under his banner of love, not because of anything that you have done, but because of Christ and his grace and his mercy because he's the good shepherd and he stood at the door and called you out by name and he changed your heart and he's given you a new family and a new future. And so we look at the future promise and the shepherd says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm going to keep going on like this. There's a, there's a whole other chapter to the story, isn't it? The cross didn't have the final say. He was raised from the dead. Eyewitnesses, it's, it's not in dispute. And what does he promise to do? I'm coming back. To do what? To set everything right. I'm going to come and set it all right. No more sin, no more sickness, no more death, no more crying. I'm going to come and make it all right. I'm going to come and renew it. I'm making all things new. And what's he ask us to do? Trust him by faith. He has been faithful thus far. Why in the world would he cease to be faithful moving forward? Why would he ever go back on his word? Has he gone back on his word thus far? No. Has his word failed? No. Will he not continue to keep his promises even till the end of the age? Of course he will. And so how does that give us hope? We rest in the fact that He continues to go on like He did. God's always at work, at work in your heart and work in your families, and work in situations that you think are absolutely hopeful. God's at, hopeless, God's at work. And if you think, well, if you're here this morning and you don't trust Christ, I'm so glad you're here, and you might be thinking, "Well, if God only knew what I did, then He would never love me. I got some good, good news for you. Yes, he does. Yes, He does. You're never so good that you don't stand in need of God's grace and you're never so bad that you're outside the reach of it. That's the gospel. Notice I'm not up here giving you handing out a pamphlet of 10 ways to change your life. I'm not saying, oh, well, here, go do a bunch of stuff and then maybe God will love you. That's not how the gospel works. We were once his enemies and now we've been made his friends through the cross. changes everything because of that one man. And so, again, I ask you the question, aren't you glad... That Jesus kept going on like He did. I am, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true. And as we come to you and we think about all that you have done, you laid down your life willingly to rescue and redeem your enemies. That's us, so that your children, who were scattered abroad, could be brought back in and brought back into one family. We're thankful, O Lord, for your covenant faithfulness, your kindness, your mercy, your sovereignty, that you are able to change our hearts. And Lord, as we think about these situations that we think are hopeless, O Lord, we trust you. We're thankful that you went all the way to the cross for us, accomplishing what we could never do on our own. And so our only response is to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. And Lord, forgive us for the ways that we, Lord, are trying to Seek glory for ourselves. Forgive us of the ways that we're trying to hold so tightly onto our carefully crafted plans for our future as if we had any control over them at all. Lord, help us to open our fists and help us to stop white-knuckling it through life and help us to rest in your grace and your mercy and your sovereignty. You really are a good shepherd. And Lord, help us to follow you, even into the scary places, knowing, O Lord, you're never going to ask us to go anywhere that you yourself have not gone first. And we are thankful as we lean into the promises that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Lord, you have conquered the grave. And we're thankful that you continue to go on like you did. Your mercy rolls on like a river. And so, Lord, help us to rest in that and trust in that and by faith rest in you until you call us home or you return in glory. And our prayer is simply this. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.